Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, promises to help the bottom line and the planet at the same time. Is it too good to be true? Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of an episode digging into that very question. Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. An historic week for the nation with sober implications. For only the fourth time, the U.S. House introduced articles of impeachment against the sitting president of the United States. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler set out the case that President Trump's actions constituted an abuse of power. Nadler pointed to the president's rejection of congressional oversight and his refusal to be held responsible for his actions. What is central here is do we want a dictator, no matter how popular he may be, no matter how good or bad the results of his policies may be, no president is supposed to be a dictator in the United States. House Republicans, outnumbered, stood by their president, depicting impeachment as just another step in a process they deride as driven by people unhappy with the results of the 2016 election. Republican Congressman Matt Gates of Florida. Impeachment is their passion, their drug, their all-consuming ambition and obsession. And across the pond, what some are calling the most consequential election in a generation. The British people gave Prime Minister Boris Johnson a resounding victory after three and a half years of debate over breaking with the European Union. This one nation conservative government has been given a powerful new mandate. To get Brexit done. And not just to get Brexit done, but to unite this country and to take it forward. With us from Washington is Liz Landers. She's a D.C. correspondent for Vice News. Elizabeth, welcome back to On Point. Hi, thanks for having me. Also with us from Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, Annie Carney. She's a White House reporter for The New York Times. Annie, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And from Hanover, New Hampshire, On Point news analyst Jack Beatty joins us. Hello, Jack. Hello, David, Elizabeth, and Annie. So let's start at the top of the week. We had the uh, House Judiciary Committee uh, hearings on uh, these articles of impeachment that were unveiled. Liz Landers, uh, take us through what uh, what the House uh, House Judiciary sh- uh, shared with the nation, what, what they presented and what you think they accomplished this week. Sure. So this week we saw the impeachment inquiry move into the Judiciary Committee. It had been in the Intelligence Committee before. That's where we had seen uh, Chairman Adam Schiff laying out um, sort of the case for impeachment by interviewing fact witnesses. That was all the testimony we saw a few weeks ago. This week was focused more on allowing the Democrats and the Republicans in the Judiciary Committee to um, debate, essentially, for an entire week whether the president should be impeached. So we saw earlier in the week um, a, a number of lawyers basically presenting the case on behalf of the Democrats and then on behalf of the Republicans. And uh, sometimes they were questioning one another about the facts of the impeachment inquiry. And then later on in, in this week, in the past few days, we've seen the members debating one another. So that was the um, very long, <laughs> extremely long hearing that we saw last night. It lasted about 14 hours where 
members of the Judiciary Committee sat and debated one another. And as someone who covers Congress, uh, that's not something you always see. Members don't really get time to uh, parse each other's um, arguments. So it's it's actually – it might be tedious to sit and watch that, but it is kind of refreshing to see the Democrats and Republicans go back and forth on these issues. Annie Carney, uh, I want to play for you a little clip at a press conference Tuesday, House Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff, who obviously uh, oversaw the investigative part of uh, what we saw in recent weeks. He made the case publicly that impeachment was not simply about past abuses of power, but that failing to impeach President Trump would allow the president to, quote, cheat in another election. The evidence of the president's misconduct is overwhelming and uncontested. And how could it not be when the president's own words on July 25th I would like you to do us a favor, though, lay so bare his intentions, his willingness to sacrifice the national security for his own personal interests. And when the president got caught, he committed his second impeachable act, obstruction of Congress of the very ability to make sure that no one is above the law, not even the president of the United States. Annie Carney, um, what kind of traction, what kind of weight does that argument carry? I think he's trying to make the point that Democrats are making that this isn't about opposing Donald Trump's policies or disagreeing with him. This is about um, that's a separate track that will be decided in the 2020 election. This is simply about the Constitution and about abuse of power and that they don't really have a choice given his actions. They're trying to make the argument that um, they politics aside, they have no choice. Um, What we're seeing on the floor here is that, you know, every controversy, even marginally related to impeachment, was thrown out yesterday. Um, we're seeing a completely partisan battle over these articles with Republicans and Democrats uh, just talking completely past each other. And I think what we saw a lot yesterday was what can be considered possibly a preview of the general election, where Matt Gates, a Republican, um, brings up Hunter Biden and his drug issues. These are the kinds of attacks that I think... Are, can be seen as a preview of what this completely divided politically country will be going into all of next year. Uh, yesterday, Jack Beatty, uh, the top Republican for the House Judiciary Committee, as, as Liz Landers mentioned, Doug Collins, was lashed out the chairman after the abrupt delay of the vote of the articles late last night. Uh, Collins clearly caught off guard, accused Democrats of waiting for prime viewing hours. This is why they don't like us, because they know it's all about games. They know it's all about these TV screens. It's all about getting at a president because they want the prime time hit. This is Speaker Pelosi and Adam Schiff and the others directing this committee. I don't have a chairman anymore. I guess I just need to go straight to Ms. Pelosi and say, what TV hit does this committee need to do? Because this committee has lost all relevance. Jack, uh, after more than uh, 12 hours debate, Democrats said they didn't want it to appear like they were voting in the middle of the night and said wanted the vote to happen in daylight. Uh, Can any of this be be viewed as other than in a partisan light? I mean, are there ways to say, you know, there's an affirmative case being made there, both for the process and I guess, you know, uh, in the background for the substance itself? Well, the Republicans aren't joining the argument on substance. Uh, As that clip indicated, they're fulminating over um, faux controversies and, uh, you know, Uh, histrionic displays. And, uh, you know, what I was struck with was how really the controlling number 
for this, uh, for the Republicans, was 13,435. Those are the number of, quote, false or misleading claims, according to the Post fact checker, made by the president. And that, that way of that, 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 that instinct for, for dissembling, let's be very soft about it, is, is, is full, is what you heard again and again from the Republicans. They, they simply wouldn't, not only wouldn't they uh, deal with the facts by saying, well, no, the president really didn't mean this or that. Some said that, but mostly what they said was, no, those aren't the facts at all. What happened isn't what happened. The, and, and, and this continual denial of reality. To me, it had no more um, uh, indicative moment than the way they dealt with Adam Schiff's paraphrase. This is months, a month ago when Adam Schiff was summarizing what the president's phone call was. He said, and to paraphrase what the president said, and he went into this parody of gangster talk. The Republicans kept coming to that and saying, he distorted what the president said. And they never said, he, he did say it was a paraphrase. That's a deliberate deception of their voters. That's, that's not accidental. That's the president's habit of, of, of lying, of dissembling, of deceit that has seeped in right to his party. And I think it, it's, it's worth noting for those of our listeners who are not aware, uh, earlier this morning, the House Judiciary Committee did take its formal vote uh, and approve both articles of impeachment. It's a historic moment, a historic day. By a margin of 23 to 17 along straight party lines, the Democratic-led House Judiciary Committee voted to impeach uh, President uh, Donald John Trump and to send those along to the full House uh, where they will be considered presumably uh, next week. President Trump uh, responded to articles of impeachment uh, at a rally in Hershey, Pennsylvania, Tuesday night in anticipation of this moment. It's been common practice for the president to hold rallies in front of friendly supporters when crisis flares in Washington. Now that the Russia witch hunt is dead, a big, fat, disgusting fraud... The congressional Democrats are pushing the impeachment witch hunt having to do with Ukraine. But that's already failing. You saw their so-called articles of impeachment today. People are saying they're not even a crime. What happened? All of these horrible things, remember? Bribery and this and that. Where are they? They send these two things that are not even a crime. The articles of impeachment include abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. The second one is similar to one of the charges brought against President Nixon, uh, you know, all those decades ago, contempt of Congress. So that impeachment is like a criminal indictment. And once the House, as seems foreordained, votes uh, to in, uh, impeach the president of the United States, the actual trial will be held in the U.S. Senate. Unlike the Democratic House, House Republicans control the U.S. Senate. And Senate Majority Mitch, uh, Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky has said he'd align the trial of Trump with the desires of the president's lawyers, right down to what evidence to introduce and whether to call witnesses. He spoke to Fox News last night. Everything I do during this, I'm coordinating with White House counsel. There will be no difference between the president's position and our position as to uh, how to handle this uh, to the extent that we can. We're, we don't have the kind of ball control on this that a typical issue, for example, comes over for the House. If, if, if I don't like it, we don't take it up. We have no choice but to take it up. So, Annie Carney uh 
we've only got a little bit of time left, about 30 seconds left. But how consequential is it what Mitch McConnell just said? He went on Hannity last night, i.e. the program where he speaks directly to the president. And he's making it clear that the council, he's going to take his cues from the council's office. And there's going to be no daylight between um, what the White House wants and how the Senate Republicans will take this up. Um, I think the Senate Republicans are hoping for a short trial to wrap this up. Uh, The president himself has made it clear he thinks that there could be a upside for him to a long trial, a drawn out thing to present his side of the case. Um, They'll have to come to an agreement on that soon. It's a pretty striking moment given the Senate is part of the uh, oversight of the president of the United States. But there we are. We're talking about the articles of impeachment against President Trump that will be voted on in coming days by the full U.S. House of Representatives, plus the report on the investigation into Russian election interference and Attorney General William Barr's sharp criticism of his own agencies. I'm David Folkenflick, and this is On Point. Stick around. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken?, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. A recent episode featured a debate about ESG, or environmental social governance. This sounds like more work than just putting your money into a social impact fund. It's a lot more work. Yeah. Anybody who thinks there's an easy solution here is either engaged in puffery, greenwash, or deceiving themselves. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm David Folkenflick. The House of Representatives is poised to impeach President Trump in coming days, making him just the third president in United States history with that mark against his name. We're talking this morning about the substance, the process, the politics, and the implications for all of it. We have a superstar and super sharp panel of guests with me this hour, Liz Landers of Vice News, Annie Carney of The New York Times, and our own On Point news analyst, uh, Jack Beatty. I want to uh, offer a couple of uh, – some feedback from listeners uh, – Thinking about all these things this morning, uh, Jack Vick uh, comments on Facebook, not one word about the Mueller report and nothing about bribery. The Democrats have nothing. If you don't believe me, just ask the Senate. Uh, Carl Denham says uh, it's clear this impeachment attempt is driven mostly by pure politics. Democratic leader uh, Al Green admitted that if this impeachment fails, they're going to attempt it again and again and again. Um, And we've had other comments uh, uh, from our website, Neil Blanchard asks, why is the White House locking up all the records of meetings and phone calls between Trump and Putin? It is perhaps notable uh, that uh, the president, uh, the president's lawyer says uh, uh, he will argue on behalf of – excuse me. The president's lawyer is expected to argue on behalf of President Trump during the upcoming Senate impeachment trial according to NBC News, reporting that on the basis of what they were told by a senior administration official. Uh, Mike Pompeo, secretary of state uh, – was among those who did not testify in front of the the House proceedings. Uh, It has been a touchstone for congressional Republicans defending the president. Uh, 
to say that Ukraine, uh, like Russia, interfered in the 2016 elections. The form and magnitude, very different. Republicans have pointed to an opinion piece by the Ukrainian ambassador, for example. Meanwhile, the U.S. intelligence community says Russia actively sought to disrupt the elections by hacking Democratic emails, activating troll farms, you name it. And here's what U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo underscored on Tuesday in Washington. On the question of interference in our domestic affairs, I was clear. It's unacceptable. And I made our expectations of Russia clear. Uh, the Trump administration will always work to protect the integrity of our elections, period. Should Russia or any foreign actor take steps to undermine our democratic processes, we will take action in response. I'd like to take a call now from Waterloo, Iowa. Karen, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. Uh, hi. I, thanks for taking the call. First, I want to speak to what was just said. I recently read that the Senate voted down a, a motion to stop, to uh, prevent Russia from uh, interfering in our election. And I'd like to know, you know, for me, what is their intent if they are going to just allow Russia to interfere and not take any steps, which I don't believe they have done, to stop them from interfering again? They've voted to say, yeah, we'll do it, but the White House has not done. Then what is the intent? Secondly, if they you've already quoted how many times Mr. Trump has lied and what has happened with regard to his refusal to turn over any documents related to Russia and or uh, his obstruction and the, the business with Ukraine, I think that any senator... Any congressperson who votes to disregard that is also guilty of obstruction. And lastly, I would just like to implore the Republican Congress people to stop yelling. It is not necessary when you get up to the microphone to yell. It is offensive to me that whenever they have anything to say, it is at the top of their lungs. They do have a microphone, and nothing that they're going to do with regard to volume is going to lend any more credence to the uh, accuracy of their claims or demands. Well, thank you for that, Karen. Let me throw that to you, Liz Landers. Uh, you've been covering all this for Vice News there in mm -hmm. the nation's capital. Um, you know, what is the intent of uh, of Senate leaders in terms of hearing? And I realize we're leapfrogging a little bit over the formality, but nonetheless, the important historic moment of a full House vote. But if, in thinking about how Republicans on the Senate side are thinking about this, how do they define the charge in front of them? Well, I think that when you when you talk to Republicans on the Hill, uh, both on the House and the Senate side, they view the president's power um, as the executive as broad. And that's the interpretation that these Republicans are um, or, or sort of the explanation that they're giving as to why he has not a abused power and why he's b not obstructing justice. I think when it comes to the abuse of power charge, uh, most Republicans say that the president has executive powers. It's laid out in the Constitution. He is able to uh, make these kinds of requests of foreign governments. That's how it's done. That's how we strike deals um, when we're dealing with, uh, you know, other other countries. And then when it comes to the obstruction of Congress, a lot of these Republicans say, well, these are um, 
private conversations happening in the White House and in the executive branch. If you make these sort of things public, then we're never going to get anything done in the government. So, you know, when I am on the Hill talking with these members, that is mostly what I'm hearing. And and on the Senate side, too, I think the senators are also um, really sinking their teeth into the idea that the House and the way that the Democrats in the House conducted this impeachment hearing, you know, gave no due process to the president, which, as you mentioned earlier, he will have a, more of an opportunity to defend himself via potentially his lawyer in the Senate trial. And which certainly uh, he took some real actions to discredit along the way, even as he withheld a significant number of uh, the ability of a significant number of people to testify or provide information to the committee, right? Right. It's an unprecedented, um, you know, sort of sweeping general no that the White House gave. And we saw that in the in the letter that the White House counsel sent about a month ago, a long letter sort of in the voice of the president saying, this is a sham and we're not going to turn over any documents. Even in, in the Nixon trial and in the Bill Clinton impeachment trial, there were tons of documents that were provided. And there were witnesses from the executive branch who were provided to Congress uh, to be questioned. Those Those kinds of requests, like Speaking with the acting uh, chief of staff of the White House, Mick Mulvaney, who has been apparently directly involved in many of these conversations regarding uh, the the aid being held from the from Ukraine, uh, he's been you know told not to testify. Along with you mentioned Secretary Pompeo, a, a whole host of people who are fact John witnesses, Bolton, uh, you know, uh, the exactly. vice president, uh, you know, all exactly. kinds of people who might shed light on these very decisions, these very actions. Right. And those are the fact witnesses uh, that the Republicans keep saying in these hearings for the last week. You know, judiciary has not had fact witnesses. And the Republicans keep saying we we don't have any fact witnesses here. Well, the president has blocked fact witnesses from appearing before the Judiciary Committee. Jack Beatty, I want to go to the question. It seems to me there's been a consistent effort to undermine the legitimacy of the process and procedures in the House, uh, but also retroactively a, an ongoing effort to delegitimize uh, the question of the original investigations of uh, Trump's actions and the Trump world's actions in the 2016 campaign and subsequently. All of this was subject to a number of views, but particularly to the review of Inspector General Michael Horowitz. Uh, he's Inspector General for the U.S. Justice Department. He looked into this entire ball of wax and I want to play two clips from him. He testified before Congress this week his conclusion that the investigations of the Trump campaign for its ties to the Russians were properly launched. We did not find documentary or testimonial evidence that indicated political bias or improper motivation influencing his decision to open the investigation. This was a very sore point for uh, Republicans. And yet uh, Horowitz uh, did address lawmakers' questions about his report's findings on the FBI's handling of elements of the investigation in the Russian election interference, things like uh, the applications to a FISA court allowing them to do certain kinds of, of, of wiretapping abroad and the like. Though the investigation found wrongdoing uh, – uh, though the investigation, uh, the larger investigation into the Trump world found wrongdoing, the inspector general's report also found deep, deeply inappropriate actions along the way in terms of the ways in which uh, the FBI operated. We found, and as we outline here, are deeply concerned that so many basic and fundamental errors were made by three separate hand-picked investigative teams 
on one of the most sensitive FBI investigations after the matter had been briefed to the highest levels within the FBI. So, Jack Beatty, how important is this and what, what are we as, as citizens and as listeners to, to derive from all this? Well, it's a mixed verdict, isn't it? Um, even looking at it objectively, the 17 errors or omissions, to quote from the Horowitz report, made in the FISA applications, that's shocking. And some of it, when you get into the detail of it, uh, it's, uh, it, 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 it's appalling. I mean, the, it, it turns out that Carter Page, the focus of this uh, FISA application, the person they're looking to spy on, essentially, to use that term, uh, uh, had also been working for the CIA. The FBI people knew that and yet didn't pass that on to the FISA court judge. Uh, you know, it, it, and, and if this is how they handle a major, you know, the major investigation of our time, really, because it's into a presidential election, what about the average Joe going before hoping to get some, uh, you know, uh, FISA, uh, a FISA warrant against them? Uh, what kind of chance do they have? And I think all of that, uh, underscores what Pat Leahy and others have been saying for years, that these FISA applications need to be done under an adversary system. There needs to be a lawyer there speaking for the defendant. And that's not the way it is now. You have to trust the government to turn over all the information. And it's a rubber stamp. These things are just given whenever nearly 100 percent of applications are granted. And what we see now is they can be deeply tainted and that can damage citizens' uh, uh, constitutional rights. On the other hand, there is no deep state conspiracy. There is no uh, evidence of political bias in the, in the inception of the report. This throws into the shade, uh, you know, almost two years of President uh, uh, Trump's uh, Billingsgate about all this is, you know, the, oh, the deep state, then the, the FBI is out at, and he was calling the FBI scum the other day in Pennsylvania. You know, they aren't scum. They didn't, there wasn't political bias. Uh, they made terrible mistakes in these, in these FISA applications. Uh, but this isn't a witch hunt. <laughs> and the president and that whole cover story falls. Of course, Fox News didn't represent it that way. Sean Hannity went on and said, everything I've been saying, everything the president has been saying, all vindicated. There's no vindication of that line. And Annie Carney, before we move on a little bit to what else has happened in, in Capitol Hill and, and at the White House this week, uh, it seems to me as though Jack's hit on something interesting that, that you know, real abuses but not the ones that have been identified. Meanwhile, the U.S. Attorney General, Bill Barr, excoriated the FBI this week in interviews with Fox and with NBC's Pete Williams. In this with uh, Williams, Barr blames the FBI's wrongdoing, outlined the Horowitz reports for investigation and impeachment of the president, suggesting they are not legitimate. I think our, our nation was turned on its head for three years. I think uh, based on a completely bogus narrative that was largely fanned uh, and hyped by an irresponsible press. Uh, and I think that there were gross abuses uh, of uh, FISA uh, and inexplicable behavior that is intolerable in the uh, FBI. So, Annie Carney, what about that? Barr doesn't say, hey, wait a second, maybe we're overbroad in our ability to exercise security uh, authorization to, to, to 
follow our own citizens around, but says, hey, this is deep state stuff. This is a bogus narrative and gross abuses by the FBI. How, what does that say about the FBI and wh- how is that taken within it? Well, this is a report that's been hyped by the president and his allies for months. And then it comes out, um, does not show that what he claimed was true, that there was spying on his campaign or anything else. And Barr and Trump just kind of continued along and, and kind of turned to the next thing. Like Barr is conducting his own investigation and, um, he, is reinvestigating the Russia inquiry with uh, John Durham, a United States attorney from Hartford, Connecticut, who released a very unusual statement um, when this report came out saying he disagreed with the findings and that he was going to conduct a broader, more thorough investigation. So what happened here was the report came out. It didn't prove what the president wanted it to prove. So instead of saying case closed, they've just toggled to the next investigation that Barr is conducting uh, and Barr... We've seen time and again um, has backed up the president in in what he wants to hear and what he wants to see. And we can expect this investigation to back up uh, theories that have so far no basis in facts. And Liz Landers, uh, before the end of the segment, I want to move on to the fact that there's been a number of deals struck. It seems as though there's been this update to uh, to NAFTA, a sort of a compromise struck between the White House and House Democrats, the USMCA. Uh, mm-hmm. And they've also struck a budget deal that essentially fund uh, the federal government's operations, I believe, through September 30th, the end of the fiscal year, which may avoid a lot of these so-called continuing resolutions that you have to do to keep government open. Um, tell me about the ability of the president and I guess Speaker Pelosi to, to reach common ground even as she's essentially posing an existential threat to his political career. Right. This has been probably the most interesting uh, contrast that reporters have been following in D.C. this week, this idea that the Democrats are bringing articles of impeachment against the president. But yes, they are striking uh, the USMCA deal, which will replace NAFTA. It's something that uh, Pelosi has been working on with the trade representative Lighthizer for months and months now. And it seems like they were able to reach a deal with Canada and Mexico this week. Um, Pelosi loves to play political games with Donald Trump and and with the president. And I think that um, she knew that it would kind of cause a stir to, you know, release these articles of impeachment on the same day that she said she was going to strike this deal. I would also note that Democrats, her own caucus, has put a lot of pressure on her to strike a deal because there are a number of these Democrats who have flipped districts that were very Republican in 2016. They flipped them to Democrat in 2018. That's why the Democrats have the majority right now. A lot of those um, endangered Democrats have been pressuring Speaker Pelosi to put USMCA up um, so that they have something to go back to with their constituents and say, look, we were able to get a budget deal. We were able to get a trade deal even while we're impeaching the president. So she also understands that that helps her own members, too, when they go back home. Um. Coming up, we're going to be discussing the steps the Trump administration has been taking to stop anti-Semitism on college campuses. We'll be talking about the British elections, about Brexit, about Boris Johnson, and about concerns there as well. And we'll be discussing all the latest from the campaign trail here in the United States. I'm David Folkenflik. Stick around. This is On Point.
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick. We're following a bunch of other stories from the week. Here's one that caught the attention of a lot of folks. Houston Police Sergeant Christopher Brewster was killed this week while responding to a domestic violence call. Houston Police Chief Art Acevedo, outside the medical examiner's office, slammed Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell for not acting to reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act. According to the Washington Post, he specifically criticized Republican leaders for not supporting an item in the bill that would have stopped uh, domestic partners convicted of domestic violence from possessing firearms. The NRA doesn't like the fact that we want to take firearms out of the hands of boyfriends that abuse their girlfriends. And who killed our sergeant? A boyfriend abusing his girlfriend. So you're either here for women and children and our daughters and our sisters and our aunts, or you're here for the NRA. So you have the police chief in a major American city, the fourth largest city in the U.S., one of the largest cities, of course, in Texas, uh, calling out Texas senators, uh, Ted Cruz, John Cornyn, uh, for their stances uh, against uh, reauthorizing the Violence Against Women Act, against certain loopholes uh, in gun uh, control laws. Uh, And at the same time, those senators say actually existing law should have taken care of that and simply failed uh, to do so. We have an incisive panel of guests this hour with me. Continuing on, we have Liz Landers of Vice News, Annie Carney of The New York Times, and our own on-point news analyst, Jack Beatty. A little bit later this segment, we'll be talking about the latest from the 2020 candidates on the campaign trail. Yet first, I'd like to turn to focus on a number of events and episodes that raise the question of anti-Semitism. In the United States and around the world, we're seeing a notable rise in anti-Semitic incidents. That's according to groups that monitor such bigotry and by how life is experienced, especially by Jews themselves. Um, This week in Jersey City, New Jersey, hate came uh, with a deadly toll, according to the mayor there. And the Trump administration also is taking a controversial step to stop anti-Semitism on college campuses. We'll talk to that in a minute. First, I wanted just to play a clip of uh, Jersey City Mayor Stephen Fulop. Uh, he, he spoke uh, to reporters responding to the deadly shootout at a Jersey City kosher deli. Five people were killed there following the shooting death of Detective Joseph Seals. There is no question that this is a hate crime and anti-Semitism should be called out aggressively and firmly immediately for what it is. Uh, authorities there are starting to look at that as, in fact, a hate crime, that the idea that people were targeted at that market. I also wanted to turn now, uh, Annie Carney, to the Trump administration's uh, steps uh, on college campuses. Uh, and it was one that that was announced and intended, I believe, to combat what is perceived as anti-Semitism uh, as it affects uh, uh, public stances toward uh, uh, towards the state of Israel, but also – 
uh, it's one that raised concerns because it involved in effect, although not in law, considering uh, Jews as though Jewishness itself, Judaism itself is a nationality. Andy Carney, can you talk to us a little bit about what the administration is trying to address in the way in which it did so? Sure. Yeah, they, um, tr- President Trump signed an executive order earlier this week, um, which seeks to withhold federal money from education from colleges that failed to combat discrimination against Jews. Um, and so they've been working on this for a long time. They've been actually working on this with some Democrats. Uh, one person who was deeply involved with this was um, a former top advisor to Harry Reid. Um, the thing here, though, is that it wasn't greeted across the board as a great measure to take against fighting anti-Semitism. Um, there it's widely acknowledged that anti-Semitism is rising in this country, but critics complain that this policy actually raises questions about stifling free speech, um, that um, there is legitimate opposition to Israelis' policies towards Palestinians, um, and squashing that speech on college campuses in the name of fighting anti-Semitism could raise real questions about free speech. So this was greeted. There was a mixed reaction to this executive order from Trump. Um, On the one hand, um, relief that a president who has failed to condemn uh, white nationalists and anti-Semitism outright in famous incidents like Charlottesville appeared to be taking a stance um, on the other hand, raising real questions about free speech on college campuses. We have a, a, a if, Jack. If, I want to turn may, you. Just, uh, yeah, yeah, I just want to. Yeah, I was going to say that a, 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 a superbly droll comment on this came from Senator Brian Schatz, identified by the New York Times as a quote liberal Jewish Democrat. He said the idea that a college campus would have its views on Israel regulated by the Department of Education, oi gewalt. Well, I mean, Jack, it, it's an interesting thing. There's this BDS movement, the idea it's a boycott, divestment of, uh, of the student activists who are upset about uh, the situation for Palestinians there uh, in, in Israel and in, in occupied territories nearby. There's this movement to boycott uh, companies or firms that are based there, do business there, divestment of that, I guess drawing an analogy to movement to try to divest from companies in South Africa during the apartheid era there, 1980s and early 90s. Um, and there's this intention over whether this is anti-Israel and also whether this is anti-Semitic. Uh, some American Jews have uh, you know, struggled with that very question as well. The identity, the question of being a national identity at the same time in concert with being a religious identity uh, is uh, is complicated for a lot of American Jews. And yet you saw people like the head of the American uh, – the AJC, which, who, who is himself a liberal figure, uh, essentially endorse this and note that actually under Obama, some officials had made movement in that direction as well. Uh, yes, I mean, there's no doubt it's a complicated issue, and but but the uh, it, you know I I think that uh, Senator Schatz has a really good point here, which you, you know this Department of Education uh, adjudicating questions of well, let's see, is this anti-Semitic? Is that well, you don't want that 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 has a it, 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 there's a kind of star chamber quality to that i i i would not uh trust betsy devos to make uh, a sound judgments on this and 
it had, you know, this is from a president, uh, you know, Annie has said, who has uh, a very spotted record on this. And just this week, uh, in an address to a Jewish audience, uh, ostensibly speaking in defense of Israel, uh, he, uh, he, he, he spoke many, let out many anti-Semitic tropes. He just, you know, he can't. Well, I mean, one of the key ones he, is one of our listeners. That's one of our listeners yep. points out, one of the key ones, the idea that Jews care only about money. He essentially said, you That's know, it. you guys uh, may hate me, but you're going to vote for me because I'm going to take care of your taxes and I'm going to protect your money, which a lot of Jews uh, uh, took exception to. Uh, Liz Landers, I want to go. I realize you guys are based in Washington at the same time. <laughs> what happens in London has repercussions here and echoes here. Uh, we just saw uh, – uh, last night, an extraordinary show of strength uh, by the conservative party over there. Boris Johnson, who was essentially a minority uh, government, went back to British voters and say, let's move past. Let's move forward on Brexit, by which he really meant let's move past Brexit. Let's just get this thing done. Stop thinking about it mm-hmm. so much. And that seemed to resound. What uh, what lessons do you think Americans should take from that? And, and what do you think we're going to see in terms of the uh, relationship with the U.S. Uh, as, as Britain moves forward in this new thinking, this new, uh, new Johnson administration? Right. Well, it's no secret that uh, President Trump and Boris Johnson like each other. They have an affinity for one another. And President Trump seems to like uh, Johnson a lot more than he liked Theresa May when she was the prime minister. Uh, So in terms of the relationship between the two leaders of the countries, I suspect it will continue to be good. Um, You know, a lot of people this morning, you know, you wake up and you see this kind of news and and people want to look at what this means for the United States. I think, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, who was running against against Boris Johnson with, you know, the, the Labor Party, basically was running on a platform of socialism. And I think that a lot of Republicans that I've seen this morning uh, here in the U.S. are sort of seizing on this idea that socialism was defeated last night and that Democrats here in the U.S. should take heed. I'm not sure we can make, you know, quite such a direct comparison between British politics and U.S. politics. But uh, it it certainly is interesting to see how the British people uh, decided that, you know, Brexit is the top issue over there and they voted for Boris Johnson again. So that is a ringing endorsement of that policy going forward. So we should expect to see that happen. I think you're right soon. Uh, Jack Beatty, before we move past the uh, the uh, British elections, you and I had talked a little bit before the show and you'd said in talking about questions of anti-Semitism, this was something which really uh, tore apart in some ways uh, the Labor Party and, and and dominated conversation about them in the weeks leading up to the election. Such that a substantial, nearly half of uh, British Jews said that they would seriously consider leaving England if Corbyn won. Corbyn, according to uh, a the, the Jewish labor movement, a, a group of in the Labour Party, is has is presiding over an institutionally anti-Semitic. A, a, a party that has uh, – and they, they cite all sorts of uh, examples of this. And it is a it's – a, it's a, if there's a consolation in this victory for, for, for uh, 
for, for uh, the, 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 the Tories. It's that it's a chance for the Labor Department and the Labor, the Labor, <laughs> the Labor Party to come clean, to cleanse itself of this of this curse, which uh, uh, Corbyn has essentially turned the party again, quoting from the study into a welcome refuge for anti-Semites. He's going to be. He's going to leave. He, he's sure. been defeated, and let's hope that this cause has been defeated too, uh, in uh, in the in British politics. This poison. Annie Carney, one of the things that strikes me about the British election is that Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party didn't really have a message. They didn't take a stance on Brexit. It was just like we're going to fund all these social things that seem to be beside the point. As we look on this side of the Atlantic, as we think about 2020, as we think about the Democrats, uh, you're starting to uh, see some distinctions being made by Democrats. But I'm wondering if if any of them you see are, abling, are able, particularly somebody uh, towards the fore like Bernie Sanders or, or Joe Biden or, or Elizabeth Warren or Buttigieg to make an affirmative case that makes sense in opposition to what the president's saying, which is just, you know, you like me and these guys are trying to take it away from me. Right. Um, I think they're all trying to do that. It does become harder if the economy continues to roar, it makes it very hard to say, um, to make it a change election. It, it makes it an easier case for Trump to say, why would you make a big change? Um, the economy is doing great. You have a job. Um, maybe you don't like my personal style, but you're willing to overlook it when everything in your personal life seems to be going well. But candidates like Warren um, and and uh, Sanders are looking for big institutional change and putting out um, platforms that ask voters to consider a real message that's a distinct uh, right to the left turn from where, where Trump is, is going right now. And we're seeing we're seeing as as these fights between Buttigieg and Warren um, kind of break out, we're seeing the Democrats really trying to distinguish themselves from one another in a more aggressive way now that we're getting into the end of 19 and into the real election year. Let me pick that up and play you a clip uh, uh, of of the election, a, a, a little bit about how those distinctions play out. Pete Buttigieg has faced criticism for his private sector work at the consulting firm uh, McKinsey, in no small part because McKinsey has been involved in advising a lot of its uh, clients to, to lay people off and to, to downsize, as they call it. Until this week, um, Buttigieg hadn't disclosed the clients he worked for because of a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, at his urging, McKinsey let him out of that agreement. Buttigieg released the client list. It includes Blue Cross, Blue Shield of Michigan. Here's part of his interview about all that with Rachel Maddow on MSNBC on Tuesday. When you did that sort of cost and overhead assessment for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, a couple of years after that, they laid off like a thousand people. Was your work part of what led to those layoffs? I doubt it. Uh, I don't know what happened in, in the time after I, I left. That was in 2007 uh, when they decided to shrink in 2009. Mm -hmm. um, now, what I do know is that there are some voices in the Democratic primary right now uh, who are calling for a policy that would uh, eliminate the job of every single American working at every single insurance company in the country. You know, Annie Carney, it seemed to me that for a while there, uh, Elizabeth Warren had her footing uh, and she announced this big uh, Medicare for all thing, putting her in the same camp essentially as uh, as Bernie Sanders. And yet Pete Buttigieg seemed to have found some uh, some traction or was seeking it by trying to jujitsu and go use all this against her. Uh, where do you see all that standing? I think the focus on 
Buttigieg's clients just is another reminder that he's a top-tier candidate now. When people really want to know, like, we're interested in his McKinsey years, we're really digging into his um, his past. 20s. So, so, so this is a sign that this is a serious candidate in the top tier. Um, and then the friction between Warren and Buttigieg has grown like since he's been surging in Iowa. Um, this is a critical state for both of these candidates. Um, and um, it's this is a, a fight they're having about um, about transparency and and it's a fight that is a little it's about Warren's work and how much she made and and this is a a tougher position for uh, Democrats and progressives especially when you rail against big corporations and it and it looks like making any money it makes you a hypocrite and it's a it's a problem for Democrats um, and it's it's about whether you look like you're putting your well not money where your mouth is but um, it's a sign that these two candidates are um, the ones to watch. And, of course, the president will be seeking to make his affirmative action as well as against his critics. Uh, he'll look at jobs, as we mentioned. He'll be able to point to the update of the NAFTA deal, the USMCA. And he'll seemingly at least have uh, the outlines of the phase one of a deal with China. Uh, U.S. suspending plans for tariffs on $160 billion on Chinese imports are set to take effect this weekend. Uh, September 1st, tariffs cut significantly in half. Previous tariffs remain in praise. And China making promised purchases of U.S. products uh, as well as some promised structural changes. We've been been hearing uh, from a, an incisive group. Last voice you heard was that of Annie Carney, a White House correspondent for The New York Times. Thanks, Annie, for sharing your thoughts. Thank you for having me. We've also been hearing from Liz Landers, D.C. correspondent at Vice News. Thanks, Liz. Thank you, David. And our own news analyst, Jack Beatty. Thanks, as always, Jack. Thank you, David. Continue the conversation. Get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org. Follow us on Twitters and Facebook. We're produced by Anna Bauman, Justine Down, Mylena Mata, Stefano Katsonis, Wes Martin, James Ross, Dory Scheimer, Alex Schroeder, Grace Tatter, and Adam Waller, with help from Sharif Campbell, Jeffrey Lyons, Sidney Wertheim. Our executive producer is Karen Schiff and me. I'm David Folkenflick, and this is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. Can Profit Motive Save the Planet? Is a company that takes the climate into account a better investment? How about one that pays workers a living wage and champions transparency and board diversity? That's the idea of ESG, or Environmental Social Governance. Sounds like a wonderful story. You can make more money, you can save the planet at the same time. Almost no one is going to turn that down. It's a story that Andy King of Questrom and Veet Hennish of the Wharton School challenged during a recent event at Questrom. Professor King played the critic, who says these are problems for regulation to solve, not markets. As a famous economist said to me, you can't fix externalities with the profit motive, because the profit motive is not linked to externalities. Externalities are the byproduct of pursuing profits. So you can't fix them by getting people to even look harder at profits. Meanwhile, Veet emphasized that ESG can be an important part of the solution. Regulation matters, and we need better regulation. And we need to reallocate trillions of dollars of capital over time to the climate transition alone, forgetting social justice, racial justice, and other ESG issues. We're going to need the profit motive for that. No government regulation is going to reallocate tens of trillions of dollars of capital alone 
It's going to be investors who are looking at current government regulation and future government regulation and trying to connect the dots. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.